Hello, and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Morgan Lee Davies, and here is my co-host, Gavia Baker-Whitelaw. Hello. So this week, we're discussing Andrew Davis's adaptation of the beloved children's classic Holes, starring Shia LaBeouf as Stanley Yelnats IV, uh, a young boy who is sent to the juvenile detention camp Green Lake, where boys dig holes to build character after he is wrongly convicted of a crime. The film also stars Sigourney Weaver, John Voight, and Tim Blake Nelson as the camp's administrators, and Patricia Arquette, Dulé Hill, and Eartha Kitt as historical figures who are all indirectly connected to Stanley. So this episode is a request from one of our lovely Patreon subscribers, Margaret. Uh, Thank you, Margaret, for requesting this episode. I think I said on last week's episode when we were teasing this that I wasn't sure whether I had seen it before. I definitely had not. I realized pretty quickly. But I did love this book. As a child, I read it. Yeah, me too. I definitely read this book as a kid and thought it was great. Turns out I hadn't seen the movie, but this was like really fun, especially because like if you're a listener and you're listening to that description, you're like, this sounds like a very worthy kind of young adult film about the carceral system. And it's like, well, (laughs) it's fun. It's a fun movie for kids, which is also about, you know, injustice. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely like an allegory for the prison industrial complex. I mean, it is an allegory, but it's also directly dealing with that topic but it is quite funny and I think the book is a bit more surreal than the film I had kind of wanted to try to reread it before watching the movie and just didn't get around to it I think I have a copy of this in like my mom's house in Massachusetts which is obviously not convenient to me at the moment Um, I haven't read it since I was a kid so I did not remember almost anything about yeah I didn't remember any of the historical elements so when when Patricia Arquette showed up I was like Patricia because it's always very exciting for me when Patricia Arquette shows up in anything (laughs) I was also excited and knew you would be even more excited by her appearance (laughs) so that was great but uh yeah to give a sort of brief background of this book and film we won't do a ton of this but just to so people have some grounding um the novel was written by Lewis Sacker who was a beloved children's book author, like starting in the 1970s. And we were um, kids in school in the 90s. And his series of novels about the wayside school were like canonical works in my elementary I don't, school. Yeah, I don't think they made it to the UK, but they were definitely very big in the US. Yeah, I was going to say, I bet that they were not as uh, popular in the United Kingdom. They're very kind of American in their weird humor. But the pitch of those books was basically it was an elementary school that was accidentally built vertically instead of horizontally. So all the classrooms were on top of each other. (laughs) And there was no 13th floor. It just didn't exist. And there was all of this like bizarre, surreal humor. And they didn't really have a plot, as I recall, like each chapter would just be kind of a like strange little story. But they were really, really funny and really bizarre and perfect for kids because you didn't have to I mean I obviously was reading novels that had plots but like you didn't have to follow a long complicated story I mean, it's it was a very specific like, uh talent to have as a writer to be able to write for like the child brain yeah because there's a lot of children's novels that essentially have the structure of an adult novel but like for kids sensibilities but like that kind of surrealism it's a talent and yeah. Mr. Sacker was an elementary school teacher for a while and is married to an elementary school counselor so um he understands the children Yes. And I remember when Holes came out, he did write other novels that I have not read and was just not aware of as a kid. Like the Wayside School books were definitely what I knew him for. And so when Holes came out, which definitely has some elements of the sort of surreality of the Wayside School books and is also very funny. um, We'll talk about some of the elements of that in the movie. But 
it's definitely much more serious and is more of a sort of traditional, like long narrative structured across the course of the whole book. I was pretty surprised and it felt quite different to me, even though there are the similarities, but I loved it. Like it felt so exciting that he was doing this different thing. And um, it won the Newbery Medal, which in the United States is like the highest honor for a children's book and also won the National Book Award for children's literature and was just like a huge, it was a huge deal. Everybody who read books as a child and it was our age read that book as a kid. Like it was in all the elementary schools. It was everywhere. And it got adapted into a film several years later, probably like four years later, I think. And um, he did the screenplay himself. And so we were just a little bit older by that point. And it kind of makes sense that we didn't see it because if it had come out like two years after the book, I bet we would both have seen it. And I think we were just a little bit out of the range. Yeah. But as I said, he did write the screenplay himself and does a pretty good job, which is often not the case with authors adapting their own material. Like that definitely is a tight screenplay, although I can't comment too much on how it compares to the novel since I haven't read it in so long. And then the director, Andrew Davis is like, I've never seen any of his other movies. He's best known for making The Fugitive. And like all of his other films are like that kind of sort of thriller in the 90s. And I am just going to read the titles of these movies, which I know nothing about, but they will get you, they will give you an idea of what this man was doing. The Final Terror, Code of Silence, Above the Law, The Package, (laughs) Under Siege, The Fugitive, Steal big, steal little, chain reaction, a perfect murder, and collateral damage. Like, how this man wound up I can this only film... assume that his kids were fans of the book. Yes, that is that Because he, like, developed this movie. Like, I mean, yeah. he's not someone where you'd be like, oh, we'll hire him. Like, there's children's movies directors, you know, those people exist. You know, they could have hired Zemeckis or something. <laughs> and uh, yet, Andrew Davis somehow winds up making this movie... Which is really funny. I think you liked this movie a bit more than I did. I did definitely enjoy it. I think the biggest problem with the movie is Davis. I think it's pretty badly directed. It, it just feels very, very dated. The visual style of the film isn't really adding anything to the story. It's, kind, it's pretty workmanlike. And there's a lot of like slow-mo stuff happening which feels very much of the time. Like, it makes sense that it's in there, but yeah. now you I mean, watch it, it and you're dated. like, oh. That didn't bother me at all. I felt like I was really enjoying the story. And obviously the child actors are all great. And they've got some fun, zany, but edgy cameos from various character actors and, as the adults. And a great soundtrack. And I was like, this is all you need. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the slow-mo stuff, like, that stuck out to me as a very dated thing. But it was more like a symptom of the problem for me rather than like the only problem in the sense that I just felt like there wasn't a lot going on visually that was interesting. I I don't think it looks great. And I think there's a lot that's sort of like odd and surreal in the film, although it's probably more so in the book that that comes across. So like, for instance, Stanley's father, who's played by Henry Winkler, who is in the movie just briefly, but is like, Perfect. He's I mean, so he's funny. winklering away. Yes, really doing his thing. <laughs> and he's playing this man who is sort of like hopelessly questing after a cure for like odor in shoes. And this is his goal in life. And yes. it's all he does, um, which Stanley's mom uh, is tired of. And it's this totally bizarre scene in their apartment with him. Like he has all these old 
dirty shoes and like is cooking things on the stove to try to fix this. And there are like hints of that kind of thing throughout the movie, right? Which like the style of the movie, I don't think meets that very well. Right, like it, it's just shot in a pretty pedestrian way, and like yeah. that's I mean, bizarre. this is as zany as Andrew thing. Davis can manage. You know, he's made an effort. <laughs> yeah, and I think there's also just like it's really hard to adapt children's books in an effective way, like broadly speaking, because if you're a kid reading them, you have such a strong like imaginative response to what's being described to you, and this book in particular is so physical like they're out there in the sun and like the desert basically like digging these holes and it feels really visceral in the novel like that's the main thing I remember from this book even though I don't remember it very well is that yeah. it felt so horrible reading it and um similarly like when we talked about the Lord of the Rings last week they do a uniquely good job with that like making it feel really tactile whereas like the Golden Compass adaptations I've never been interested in because you can just tell from the trailers that like they're completely it hollow yeah. it doesn't feel that way and this obviously isn't a fantasy it doesn't have it's not doing exactly the same thing but like the feeling you get reading the book of like oh my god these kids are out there and it's so hot and they're digging these holes like it's kind of impossible to convey that in a film and like obviously all adaptation is difficult but with a kids book in particular the mindset you're in as like a 10 year old reading that yeah it's just really hard I mean, children's to books are so kind of physical yes. there's always so much like food and kind of exhaustion and that sort of thing yeah so i think that that this movie doesn't quite get there and i think the direction is the problem but i think that the script is pretty good and I think the acting is great across the board. I think the kid actors are all really good. Most of them haven't gone to do a ton. And all of the adults are like famous, like famous people, <laughs> which is really, really fun. And they're all really good in it and like really acting as opposed to just being like, eh, I'll show up for two days and like do whatever. Like Sigourney Weaver is in this really like... I mean, Sigourney Weaver likes to have fun. I don't feel like I've seen a movie where Sigourney Weaver phones it in. No, but I think she's done a lot of performances more recently where, like, she shows up for one scene. Yeah. She's kind of doing a cameo, which, like, is fine. Yeah. But this is not that. Like, she's in a lot yeah. of this movie. I mean, she's, she's like, great. 17 now. This was when she was, you know, yeah, 15 no, I'm, years ago. Yeah, no, I'm not criticizing her. It just felt very different and was exciting for that reason, you know? Like, because it is, again, like, a real performance and she's playing, like, a scary, bad lady in a very fun way. Literally, how many movies and TV shows has Tim Blake Nelson been in? A million. He's in everything. <laughs> He's in all of them. He's in all of the movies that get made. When he appeared, I didn't know he was in this. I think you read off a bunch of the cast last week and like it just yeah. vanished from my brain. But um, Yeah, me too. He appeared on screen and I literally like clutched my chest. It was like, oh, and he's playing, it turns out, um, a bad person. But um, I mean, he's playing one of those, you know, Tim Blake Nelson characters. And yeah. he's not a limited performer, but he has a range of characters that he plays. <laughs> I think what happens with him is, like, he can do a lot of different stuff. He's just not handsome. So he gets yeah, cast he's a character actor. frequently in similar types of things because they're like, oh, yeah, we know you. You'll just do that hammy thing we're used to. But um, I love him. I love him so much. And so I was really excited to see him in this. And then uh, John Voight also, I was just like, did he know what he was making? Because he is very much a Republican and this is not that movie so yeah, like i mean john voight is famously both very unpleasant personally some listeners may know him as angelina jolie's estranged father yeah and he's like a mega trumpy republican and has been since the pre-trump era <laughs> right 
So I really don't know what he's doing here. I mean, who knows how this was pitched to him? I, I don't know. But um, and he's good in it. I mean, he's, he's doing a good job. It's yeah. just very funny to see. I was like, you? <laughs> I mean, he's playing, you know, the sort of comical, nasty children's movie villain that you get in sort of, you know, Matilda or whatever. <laughs> yes. But yeah, they're all really good. And uh, this was Shia's first movie, which... He gets the, like, and introducing Shia LaBeouf credit at the end, which I was like, oh my god. <laughs> like, it was the beginning. <laughs> and he's good. He's very good. He's he's a total cutie pie in this movie. He's great. I realized watching this how few movies I've actually seen of his. I mean, he doesn't make many movies that I want to see. Well, this is the thing. I went back in his IMDb. Obviously, he was on Even Stevens. I don't even know if that was the Disney Channel or Nickelodeon. I was not, Yeah, that was Disney Channel. I was not permitted to watch either of those channels as a child. We only watched PBS in my house. So I was not familiar with that program. <laughs> I'm sure I'd seen like a couple episodes at friends' houses, like it was just on the TV or something, but I definitely was not regularly watching that show. And um, I remember him as like a famous person when we were teenagers and like the trailers for Disturbia were... All, I mean, I remember seeing those in the cinema, like, a lot when I went to the movies. I mean, I saw Transformers. Yes. Cause, and also, it's like he and Robert Pattinson kind of slightly, somewhat famously, have had a very similar career trajectory, where they kind of were in these franchises, which were colossally popular, but, like, critically panned, and their images were really tied up in that. And then they went on to make, like, very weird, a kind of edgy films as adults. And also they swapped girlfriends because they were both dating the same like eccentric, cool indie girls. I mean, this sounds very disparaging. Both of those women are extremely talented, famous, cool artists. But they both dated those women and then like, you know, the the two girls decided they wanted the other one. (laughs) I was not aware of that. And that's good. I mean, that's great gossip. Um, (laughs) But Shia LaBeouf is kind of this, I mean, his whole situation is fascinating, but the rise of his sort of career is really interesting from a celebrity standpoint because Steven Spielberg basically was like, that's my guy. Like that guy is going to be the next big thing. Like I'm going to put him in all these movies and his transition from... I mean, there's so many actors who start off with Spielberg. Yeah. Like, so especially like people who start off as child actors who aren't the kids of famous people, like people who are cast as like, you know, a young soldier in one of his 25 war movies at age 14 and then become hugely famous. Alden Ehrenreich, who he like spotted doing comedy at a bat mitzvah and was like, this guy is the funniest person I've ever seen do comedy at a bat mitzvah. He ought to be a movie star. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But I think Shia, at least in like our lifetimes, was definitely the most sort of major instance of this where I don't think that was the case. I think he just got holes off of even Stevens. I don't think there was anything. Yeah. I mean, he was like, he was like working as a child performer from pretty young because he he was doing like stand up comedy when he was like 10 and he came from a really working class background and he had a really difficult childhood. Like his father had addiction issues and like they're, you know, Morgan go into that a bit when she she's talking about um, Shia LaBeouf's autobiographical movie. But like, you know, he wasn't a child of privilege who became a star because of that. He was someone who like had to grow up really fast and basically got his career himself. He pulled some kind of scam where he like pretended to be his own manager to get an agent on the phone <laughs> or something like that and then got an agent and then ended up on the Disney Channel. So Yeah, I mean I that that sounds plausible to me. But I think after Holes Spielberg was like he's going to be the guy and 
Disturbia made a ton of money, I think. Like, I just remember the trailer, like, he's looking into pe- some woman's, like, house from, like, another house with, like, binoculars or something. I mean, it was all... I think my like, dad thought that movie was good. Well, it was a success. Um, And then he, the thing I saw him in first was Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, where he's being set up as, like, the next Indiana Jones. He plays his son in that movie. And that movie is garbage it is it so bad i have never and seen... also that came out at the point where everyone fucking hated shia labeouf yeah it was it because was everyone had seen him in transformers and everyone it was the same as as like robert pattinson where there was just like backlash yeah <laughs> so and also it was it was before the franchise stuff had totally taken over but it was already the sort of like do we really need this and like does he need to be his kid and like why he's actually totally fine in that movie but like it's yeah it's not good i mean it's not a good movie and nobody wants to see that dynamic anyway in any film so (laughs) so i saw him in that and then he gets he really goes off the rails after that point in terms of like personal life stuff he had a lot of addiction problems he got into multiple altercations with the police he did some movie with Nia Vajikowska called Lawless where like I believe she tried to quit because he was such a fucking nightmare that she was just like I cannot be here anymore which did not actually happen he was not in a good place for some time he had all these scandals where he was like plagiarizing stuff from people I mean like it was I mean I did I definitely did like a bunch of coverage of his uh performance art yeah which was actually a collaboration with I mean, it's, he's doing it, but it's a collaboration with two kind of professional, very established performance artists. And it was kind of playing around with his public image as a celebrity. And it was very sort of, I mean, it was very like basic stuff, not necessarily in a bad way, but it was like meant to be very eye-catching and stunty and like easily digestible by the public. And some of it was like, went pretty badly. The one that went well was him watching all of his old movies at the Angelica Theater in Manhattan. Yeah. And like they filmed him. It was like live streamed on his face the whole time. It was like 24 hours of him doing this. And he like laughed and cried and whatever. And it, I think people liked that. And it was like, it was affecting. I mean, some of the interactive stuff was like really good, right? Because there was so many celebrity vanity projects that just sink without trace because people fundamentally aren't interested. And for most of his kind of performance art stuff, he got stuff which got a reaction from the audience, but wasn't doing it in a way that was kind of harmful to the audience. Like it wasn't kind of needlessly edgy. It was just stunty and ridiculous. Yes. And his acting comeback really was um, American Honey, Andrea Arnold's movie in uh, 2016, which he's kind of the second lead in that. He's definitely the best performance in that movie. He's great in that film. Another thing he has in common with Pattinson, they both will willingly work with female directors. Yes. Which cannot be said of the vast majority of A-list male stars in Hollywood. Yeah. And I saw that. So that was only like the second movie of his I'd ever seen, which is so bizarre to think about because he's so famous. And like for our age group specifically, like he's definitely a very, very famous person. But I just hadn't really seen anything. And I saw that movie and I was like, oh, he's good. Like, he's actually a good actor. And he's also really hot in that movie, which you're not expecting to think. Like, he just seems like such a sleaze at that point in time. And he's got, like, a rat tail on that film. And yet I remember all the critics being like, what's happening? Like, I don't, I don't like this feeling. He has a rat tail and he's hot? I can only tell you what I felt in my heart and okay yes well <laughs> I mean people were literally I was literally seeing some like joke tweet about this the other day someone being like remember American Honey when Shia showed up and like that was the reaction that everyone had 
but he still sort of was having problems after like, there was another police incident and honey boy which i watched right after watching holes which was a surreal experience he wrote partially in rehab and sort of therapy and it's about his relationship with his father when he was a child star and he's like 12 in the movie i think and um they're living in a kind of motel-ish type setup and he's working on some show that's clearly the even stevens stand-in although they don't actually show that much of that it mostly is just him and his dad and he plays his father in the movie and noah jupe the child actor plays the younger version of him and they're kind of flashback or flash forwards i guess to like him as an adult in rehab which are much less good and lucas hedges plays him which is bizarre because he doesn't look anything like him uh yeah no or the child actor who's playing him but um the stuff about him as a child is like this is a great fucking movie like i highly highly recommend it it's on amazon prime in um america it was directed by alma harrell who like he hired again a woman to do this with him which i appreciate and um his childhood seems horrible that was my main takeaway it just seems beyond horrible it's amazing to me that he's alive was like my primary takeaway from this what i found so affecting about it was that like he's playing his dad it's obviously this therapeutic for thing for him and he obviously has tried to really understand his father who was very very troubled and like not a good parent at all and it's not excessively like villainizing him but he's also not um there's no like moment of redemption for the dad where like they come together and like, it's all fine. Cause it obviously is not, it, this is just a fucked up situation. And like, it's just really, really bad. And like, that's just what life is like sometimes. Right. Like it's, you know, it is what it is. And um, the kid playing him, Noah Jupe is like so good. I cannot even begin to describe how good he is, which you were watching it and you're sort of like, so this is a movie all about how being a child actor was really fucked up. And this child actor is really great depending on which feels a little queasy, but um it's it's amazing. I just I really highly recommend it. But it was very strange to watch right after this movie because he's a little older in in holes than he was in the period depicted in Honey Boy, but I mean this is basically this movie came out a couple of years after he moved out of the motel. Yeah. So. And it you're just thinking like, oh boy, like this was not this was not good. But he's you just don't get any of those vibes from him, which I guess is a testament to how good an actor he is and was as a child, because uh, it's such a, like, he's just playing a very, like, sweet boy in this, and there's no, like, angst, really. I mean, he's having problems in his situation in the film, but it's just a sort of strange thing to think about, that that's what a lot of those kids go through, is some sort of situation of that type. And... I feel like with him, like he's not someone I want to hang out with personally, but I find myself sort of wanting him to succeed because even though he's done lots of stuff that's um, objectionable or unpleasant, like my, the vibe I get from him is that he's quite sincere and like wanting to do the work of like art and also like wanting to get better, um, which I find quite admirable. And, and it's kind of moving to watch the child stuff from him also to be like, oh man, we you've been around for a long time and we've all been watching. And it's definitely know? one of those things where like everyone growing up, you know, you have to fuck up to have learning experiences and you have to do like stupid and bad and occasionally offensive stuff if you're an artist in order to improve. But if you're doing that from the perspective of someone who is both internationally famous from childhood and also like has the power 
to go and do whatever creative projects you want. Like to me, there's quite a lot of stuff specifically to do with plagiarism. Like when you see that sort of thing from like a public figure, I mean, you know, a younger public figure, if it's an older person, I'm just like, fuck off. But if it's a younger person, it's like, this is someone who's just been told they can and need and indeed should do dozens of side projects and they're excited to like experiment with a new thing and it's like no you shouldn't because you're spreading yourself too thin and you don't understand how any of this works because you never had the opportunity to go to art school (laughs) so you're gonna just do something unethical because they don't understand really and you're getting egged on by a bunch of yes men and i don't particularly have any affection for shia labeouf like i have sympathy for his situation but he's not a celebrity that i have much of a connection to because like like you i've not watched many of his movies but with that thing, it's like, I don't feel like it should be a witch hunt situation because he plagiarized some stuff because clearly he's been going through it and has been evolving quite a lot as a public figure while also being in one of those situations where everyone fucking hated him for years just because he was in these shit movies that he didn't make. Right. Yes. And like the best outcome for a person like that in terms of like a career, not talking about the personal life stuff, which is not really you know our wheelhouse is that they make like good weird indie movies right like sure yeah obviously if you want to make big stuff like that's fine but with him and pattinson and stewart like they all did the thing that we would hope that you would do after having that kind of like huge bizarre success as a really young actor which is like actually have like taste (laughs) and you know (laughs) use your cachet to get stuff made, which I appreciate. Um, and they've all done lots of great films. But uh, yeah, I just thought we should go to go through that because he's such a... I, I'm like sympathetic to him. I don't have a strong personal connection to him either because I haven't seen that much of his stuff. But he's just a fascinating individual and it's hard to watch this movie and not think about it. I mean, I was certainly engaged with the film, but like you, you do think about it watching him. Like he's yeah. so famous, you know? I mean, like you said, his character in this, Stanley Yelnats, is just like a sweet kid. And I was also kind of pleasantly surprised by how quite like down to earth and subtle that character was because there's just like basically the most common, like stereotypical protagonist for like this kind of children's movie in America is, you know, a dweeby, unpopular 13 year old boy who's like got some problems at home and gets bullied by the kids who seem more popular because that is perceived as like the most relatable type of person. And you get that like up through kind of teen movies. And then that is basically what he's playing the shit version of in Transformers, where it's like, oh, he's kind of dorky. And then he eventually turns into a hero and he gets this like preposterously sexy girl who's way out of his league. And obviously Transformers is garbage. But like in this, it's not really that character. He's just like a normal, quite nice kid. And like, there's some stuff he does where you're like, oh, you know, he should have been nicer, but also he's 12. And like most 12 year olds are not going to universally know that like, you know, there was like the kid who doesn't know how to read Zero, who's like the kind of secondary lead. And, um, you know, at first he doesn't offer to help that kid learn to read because he's too tied up in his own business. And then later on, you know, he decides they're friends and helps him learn to read. And it's like, yes, we're learning and growing in this film for children, but it's not too kind of over the top. And it's just like a nice little character moment for a character who's just quite likable. And I was like, good. I enjoyed this. Well, and I think, I mean, we'll start getting into the themes and what the movie's actually sort of doing and about now. But I think what the movie's sort of trying to function as in terms of like who it's speaking to 
is I I think this movie isn't designed to educate like middle and upper class white kids about like the ills of society right not that you have to be in that demographic to enjoy the film but like there's a reason that the protagonist is who he is and like i don't they don't say he's jewish but that's certainly the implication but like this sort of educating you about you know the prison industrial complex is bad and the authorities are bad and like they're gonna at one point like they're destroying records of like one of the kids who's been there and the way it's structured to me feels like they're trying to sort of or like Lewis Sacker who's obviously the original and primary author author of this is trying to sort of gently educate through light allegory kids like me when I was a child about like this stuff is bad and I think it works to have a protagonist if that's what you're trying to do and like I'm obviously you know inferring that it works to have a protagonist who definitely like has a personality but isn't too assertive or aggressive or obnoxious yeah i mean he's experiencing stuff that's happening to him right he and like it's not that he's massively passive either he's just kind of a conduit for the story and the book i think is told in the first person although maybe i'm misremembering that but like you definitely it's more in his head certainly but it's the same kind of basic thing where like he's observing a lot of stuff that's going on and he does wind up sort of proactively doing some stuff, especially later in the story. But like, it's, it's less of a like hero's journey situation, right. Than some other young adult and like children's literature of this general type. For sure. I mean, I was thinking of that a lot, like, especially in terms of just the overall tone of the movie. Cause it's kind of surprising that this is a Disney film because, like, when the Disney logo came up at the top, I was like, Disney does not make... I mean, Disney, in general, historically, did not really make movies like this very much that were this edgy, but they definitely don't anymore. And I feel like there was kind of a cutoff in the mid-2000s where, I mean, Disney, but also primarily just the film industry in general, very quickly, like, stopped making films that were mainstream entertainment and were also quite edgy and meaningful for kids. Because now, like, the most popular, by far, genre of movies is blockbusters, which are PG-13, so, like, a 10-year-old can watch them, and they're kid-friendly, but they're also kind of for adults. So they're, like, adult movies that are bodlerized. And then children's movies are, like, very clean, you know? And they're mostly fantastical. And like you said, they're mostly hero's journey, and there's a lot of, kind of, the arc is all about that character kind of reaching a goal, whether that's a fantasy thing or it's like a movie about a kid getting over their parents' divorce or something. And this movie, when we started watching it, like my flatmates were like quite shocked that it opens with like a kid seemingly attempting suicide by getting bit by a rattlesnake. And it was like, what? Is this a comedy? And then like 30 seconds later, you get one of those sort of dorky, like, yikes, hi there, I'm Stanley Yelnats, like intros from the child actor Shia LaBeouf. <laughs> it, to- it tonally is absolutely appropriate for kids like there's no content I would describe as unsuitable or whatever it doesn't come across as one of those movies that like here's a hard-hitting drama that's going to teach children about the real world it is a fun entertainment movie as was the book which is why it was so popular but um I mean it's definitely the case that like children's books are just far edgier than movies like there's so many children's books that are either wildly grotesque or pretty heavy duty, like, you know, for millennials, everyone always kind of goes on about like how the Animorphs books were like extremely edgy 
But obviously no adult ever knows that because no adult is going to sit down and read a fucking Animorphs book because they're ridiculous. But it's like, those books go to some like heavy places. <laughs> and, um, and this movie definitely kind of lingered in the public imagination because even though I've not seen it, I definitely see fairly regularly, like on Tumblr and Twitter, you see people kind of nostalgically talking about this movie or kind of talking about like, oh, remember when we all saw this film age 10 and realized what the prison industrial complex was. And also... One thing that I absolutely did not realise from this movie was the Patricia Arquette Dooley Hill romance because people fucking post gifts of that on Tumblr all the time. And for years I've been like, oh, there's some like weird movie from the late 90s where like they're a married couple or something in like a historical movie and I like never looked up what it was. And I watched this film and I was like, holy shit, this is the one that all the gifts are from. <laughs> uh, yeah, I had no memory of that being in the book. No. As as you said, like, all, basically, all the entire plot, I had completely forgot. I, I just did not recall. I remembered about the holes. I remembered about all the prison stuff. I remembered about the evil lady who owned the prison. And I remembered that they were digging for treasure and all the stuff to do with the history and, like, the curse and whatever. Which, FYI, the fact that Eartha Kitt has a cameo role in this is wild. I mean, that is the part of the movie that has aged the worst. Yeah, that element didn't work so well. There was definitely a, you know... <laughs> she plays... What is it? Madame Zeroni? Is that her name? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And she's yeah. like... Yeah, like the, the kind of role she has in context is it's like historical 19th century Latvia or whatever, but in a cartoonish way because it's a kid's movie. And then you've got her as the character who's like, here's a mysterious old racially ambiguous magic lady. And then in the present day, it turns out she's like the great, great, great grandmother of like zero the black kid who is who becomes Stanley's best friend in the prison and then they kind of unite and break the curse together by accident by kind of helping each other. Well, and I feel like in the book it's definitely I do not remember this, but I would strongly suspect that it's written as like a gypsy woman. Cause that's what she is. She just is played by Eartha Kitt. Which, I mean in Latvia. Right. <laughs> so. so like I mean obviously that's what they're attempting to do. And like, that feels very much like an American thing to be like, well, we'll cast Eartha Kitt for this. Like it does. I mean, it's like when we did the, we were doing the Philip Pullman books and I was telling you that um, when I was 10 and read about the Egyptians in that, I assumed they were black because like my brain did not know about like other cultures, right? Like in the American context, that was how me at age 10 interpreted that. But this is a movie made by grownups. Like that's not, People, come on. Um, and yeah, it's just very much like, oh yeah, the like, you know, old gypsy lady has a prophecy and it's gonna, like, she's gonna curse you Ugh. for generations. Yeah. It's bad. It's yeah. not good. However, the stuff with Patricia Arquette and Julia Hill is really good. Lovely. Lovely. That could so easily be. Like, I mean, obviously just offensive. It could so easily have been, like, preachy and offensive. And I was just like, it's cute. And, like, also, like, both of the actors are obviously, like, so cute. Yes. So. It could, but it also could be, you know, overly sentimental without being, like, objectionable. Like, it could just have gone wrong in a number of ways. And I think it's just really successful. The setup of this, if you haven't seen it, is that she plays, like, a school teacher in this town. and Also, she's, like, 14. He's, like, 25. It's Yeah. Great. I mean, she looks, she looks great, but... <laughs> I mean, obviously, Patricia Arquette always looks amazing. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, she was a school teacher in this town, and he grows 
onions. He's his official title is Sam the Onion Man in the credits. Yeah, he's the onion guy. Yeah, and um, <laughs> he has a crush on her, and they have a sort of flirtation situation. And uh, one of the racist white men in the town sees them kissing in the schoolhouse one night, and this obviously ends as you would expect, unfortunately. And she's heartbroken and turns into this sort of Jesse James type Wild West figure. Yeah, she becomes she becomes an outlaw. Yeah, um, kissing Kate Barlow is her name because she leaves a kiss on the on all the men that she kills, and um, this all sort of ties into the present day stuff because. Sigourney Weaver, who owns Camp Green Lake, is having them dig in this... It's the, the lake where this town was, and it's dried up because that's the the curse on this place. And um, she buried treasure there somewhere, and Sigourney Weaver wants to find it. And um, it is all tied together really, really neatly. Almost too neatly, I think. Like By the end, like every single strand of the plot has resolved itself which is obviously like, I was like really, well done we've got some structure here i appreciate it no it's as really a <laughs> impressive as a sort of screenwriting feat i think part of what is compelling about the sort of first half and especially like what i remember from the book right was the sense of them just being out there for absolutely no reason digging these holes being like what the fuck is the point of this not that they're saying that obviously but yeah i think in the context of a book where like so much more of the screen time slash page time is just them digging. It's like that is far more effective in illustrating the whole, the basic pointlessness of the exercise. Yeah. And in this, I think the perfect version of this in terms of like the thematic stuff wouldn't have there be any point to them digging the holes, right? Because like it would just be the sadistic thing, but like that's not a children's book. So that's not how it resolves, which is fine. I accept, you know genre. I mean, honestly, I would have been fine with it, like, ending with the same concept where Sigourney Weaver wants them to dig up a bunch of buried treasure and the resolution is that there isn't any fucking buried treasure. Like, when they opened the treasure, I was expecting it to be like, here's Kiss and Kate's peach recipe (laughs) and it was actual treasure and I was like, this is kind of a letdown, actually. (laughs) Yes, totally. Which is how those kinds of stories traditionally do resolve, right? That it's not there and that it's all been a sort of boondoggle. Yeah, the treasure we dug up was the friends we made along the way. <laughs> right, but this movie is very invested, and I I assume it's all the same in the book, although I don't remember how it ends exactly. It's very invested in everything resolving well for the good guys, and like in a neat. And I way. do also kind of want you know Zero and Stanley to get some money because their key problem is that neither of them have any money. So, well, but this is the thing too, right? Like it's all of the problems, and again, this is really impressive on a technical level that he pulls this off like it's every single problem is met by resolves it and so like they need money for x y and z and like therefore this money shows up and then they're fine and then this thing needs to happen so that whatever i mean it all fits together and works which is really clever i just think like a different kind of novel slash film would not have done that and i mean the books that i loved the most when i was a kid were like the golden compass novels which end like miserably across the board so that's what I wanted I mean you're totally right about like kids wanting just like morbid stuff right like I loved things as a child that like ended sadly like that's what I always wanted to I mean there's also like in terms of the kind of more like fully edgy books that were available to kids of this age range like when I was 
in primary school, so 10 or 11 years old, I read Junk, which I don't know if that was like a book that was available in the US, but if you imagine train spotting, <laughs> it's literally, it's literally, I, I assume written for children because it was like in the children's primary school library and I read it there at the age of 10 or 11, but it is like a hard hitting and harrowing account of someone becoming a heroin addict. I so, mean, I maybe it was I more nothing. available in Glaswegian schools, but yes. <laughs> they were trying to scare you off. Yeah, no, we did not have that. You'll be shocked to hear in my suburban Massachusetts elementary school or middle school. No, no. Um, we haven't said much about Zero, really. Who's who's the best friend? Who's played by this actor, Cleo Thomas, who has done some work since as a child and an adult. I definitely recognized him. I looked up him yeah, up. Yeah, me too. I saw it and I was like, because he's got quite a recognizable yeah. face, but I have no idea what else I've seen him in. Like, he's been in a bunch of movies and TV shows and he had, like, a music career that completely passed me by. Like, he wasn't that famous. Yeah. But I think he's really good. Ebert liked this movie a lot, as did uh, A.O. Scott at the New York Times. It got very good reviews. I mean, I think in terms of, like, Zero, but also several of the other characters... The characters are introduced in a really structurally unusual way for this kind of film, because instead of it just being like, here are all the kind of stock roles, like the heroes and the villains all getting introduced in the first five minutes, like Sigourney Weaver doesn't show up until halfway through the film. And like you said, it's not a cameo role. She has like a key role. And Zero is sort of front loaded because like you, he appears towards the beginning, but kind of the whole point is that he barely speaks to anyone and you don't know anything about him, but the actor does like a really good job of kind of being quite sympathetic even though you don't really know anything about him and they've got lots of little character moments for him before he actually starts talking and they make friends and then by the end of the film he's like the second lead yes yeah i just think that he and shia like ebert's observation about them was they don't do like kid acting acting right and i think thomas especially because he's not talking for a lot of the film there and he's black there was it could be very easy for that to turn into an unfortunate stereotype and also just from a performance standpoint because you're a kid it could be easy for it to just be bad and like blank right like it's hard to do that and i think he he just feels like a a real kid in a very successful way and there's also like a really smart kind of dynamic with tim blake nelson because like tim blake nelson is meant to be kind of the good cop to John Voight's bad cop like there's like this shitty asshole guy who's like in charge of the whole camp and then Tim Blake Nelson is this counselor who's a bit more nice to the boys and is just a kind of goofy but then like as soon as he starts interacting with Zero you realize that he is also just a monster because he's like belittling and being awful to this kid in a really kind of obvious and familiar way like when you see like an adult authority figure who just decides that they don't like one kid because they're not complying correctly to their expectations. And the reason why he hates Zero is because Zero won't talk. And like, even though none of the boys are opening up to him, Zero, he just hates. And he's like, well, this kid's useless and stupid. And you're like, wow, okay, well, Tim Blake Nelson is also the worst. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, when he first appears, Tim Blake Nelson's character, you think he's going to be sympathetic. And then he goes over to Zero and like rub, he's got sort of big hair, Zero does. And he like rubs his hair from side to side and says something like, you know, there's like, there's nothing in here. This kind of sing-songy voice about says something about how stupid he is. And you're just like, uh, no. And it very effectively and efficiently communicates that like, yeah, you can't trust this guy either. And they're both, both Voight and Nelson are playing sort of different kinds of just like spineless middlemen. And also very recognizable figures in just sort of, 
shitty educational slash childcare situations. Yes. Oh, absolutely. I mean, when they get raided at the end, because Stanley's parents have like somehow hired a lawyer to find him, that is not really explained, which is the one plot thing that doesn't I mean, really. Whatever. I mean, it doesn't yeah. matter at all, but that's like the only thing in the plot that it doesn't actually have like a, you know. Uh, Nelson is supposedly a doctor, and it turns out that he's not actually a doctor, and they have, by this point, like, Zero ran away earlier, and so they destroyed his records because they don't want anyone to come looking for him because he's an orphan. I mean, he's not actually an orphan, but he's in the system as an orphan. And um, the sort of crassness and, like, moral bankruptcy of these people is really displayed in a very effective way um, that gets to what the film is trying to sort of say about, like, systems being bad. Um, which is quite bold for a Disney film, as you said. There is, and because it's a children's movie, they just get arrested, and we have to assume that's fine. But it's like, okay, whatever. I mean, whatever yes. happens at the end, as we have learned from like movies from the nineteen thirties, whatever happens in the final reel is not relevant to the theme. Yeah, no, no, no. I did notice there is a bizarre moment at the very end where they've been calling Voight um, Mister Sir the whole time. Like his last name is Sir, and they're all giggling about this because, like, obviously that's a funny joke. Is that Mister Sir, whatever. And his name is actually Marion. And they're like, oh, that's a woman's name. And he goes, yeah, it is a woman's name. And then they all like laugh hysterically right at the very end of the movie. And I found that to be um, bizarre and gross. It was weird because it was like, I, it was because of the way they phrased it. Like, I assume the way they just meant it was like, oh, it's really funny that this guy has a woman's name. And that's why. But it's also it's like the way they phrased it almost made it seem like he was a woman or he was trans yeah. or something, which like he isn't in the movie and that's not the way it is. But it's just like, it's just a bad, stupid joke that didn't age well, but also doesn't make sense. It was bizarre. Like, I literally looked up on the Wikipedia page for the book, which obviously only has limited information, but I was like, what? Huh? Like, and there's <laughs> nothing there, but it totally reads in 2020 like a bad trans joke. And yeah. it is it's really strange (laughs) really weird so i just wanted to mention that because it stuck out to me i mean i think it's just like a strange joke that's aged badly but it's it was yeah weird um on the whole though i think the movie's like intentions are clearly good and um i think it does a good job of sort of getting the points an enjoyable film to watch with your younger relatives yes yeah with many cameos that adults can be like, oh, it's that guy. Yeah, I mean, when our cat showed up, as we said, I was just so happy. And like, yeah. that was the case with most of the adults Voight accepted. But yeah, this was totally a delight. Thanks for requesting it, Margaret, on Patreon. We've had a nice wee nostalgia fest for the last two weeks, because obviously last week we did Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, and we will be doing the next Lord of the Rings maybe next month. Yes. So um, we've been kind of traveling back to the past. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Lord of the Rings, fantastic. God, we had a lot to say if you've not listened to that episode. But um, next week is going to be a new one for me because we are watching the drama Bright Star. Which is one of my favorite films of all time, period, full stop. For those not familiar, it is a Jane Campion movie. The last feature film she made, I believe, which is now over a decade ago, which is a depressing comment on the state of Hollywood. But it is a biopic of the poet John Keats. And it is the best movie about writing ever made, in my humble opinion. (laughs) Uh, Best movie about writing, best movie about genius. One of the best romances certainly ever made. I'm not exaggerating. Wow, Um, so much shade here for Amadeus. I've never seen Amadeus, so, you know. (laughs) It's ridiculous. (laughs) 
I mean, I'm sure I would love Amadeus. It's actually on my list of things to watch it's very soon. Fun. But uh, Bright Star is incredible. It is really more about um, Fanny Braun, who was his Keats's great love, played in a film by Abby Cornish, who is so good. It's crazy. Uh, I can't believe she has not had a better career. And Ben Wishaw plays Keats in the movie and is perfect. I mean, if you don't like Ben Wishaw, then you're tired of life, as the famous saying goes. The soundtrack to Bright Star has lots of tracks that are just him reading poems by Keats out loud, and it's oh boy. very soothing. Okay. Um, well, I hope that's not too cringy for me, but I'm still looking forward to this there, film. There, it, is not, <laughs> it is not a cringy film. It's not the, the movie isn't like him reading poems over this soundtrack but um i assume not because it is a widely acclaimed movie and you personally love it yes i mean he does read poems out loud in the movie because it is a film about a poet i just can't even describe how good it is i'm really really excited to do it next week this is another patreon request and when it came in i was just like we get to talk about bright star (laughs) anyway um there will be a lot to talk about with that next week um and if you would like to listen to our commentary track for Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Ring. Or indeed our, mini- our mini-sode about Minority Report. Or read uh, anything that I've written about the New York Film Festival, which there will be something up by the time this is posted. Oh, we're probably going to do like another London slash New York Film Festival episode. Yes, that will be coming also in the next couple of weeks. Um, although it will be sort of funny this year because we will yeah, have... Yeah, we're streaming a lot. This is, yeah. I'm going to be attending the London Film Festival from my living room. Yep. Um, and I will be seeing fewer films than normal because uh, I had to pay to watch them. So, But we will still be doing some coverage. Uh, so all of that is coming up in the future. And you can access that stuff on Patreon at patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. Gavia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find my work on The Daily Dot. And you can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor. And you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at OverinvestedPod. Our Tumblr is OverinvestedPodcast. And our website is OverinvestedPodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.